feeling this Mars retrograde in my seventh house. Oh, okay. Yeah, my seventh house too. <laughs> You're Libra. We're both Libra rising, right? Yes, yes, yes. So hopefully we'll get into the significance and the meaning of Mars retrograde in this discussion. I, I was reading through your email and you mentioned analysis paralysis and I'd actually never heard of that applied to astrology before, but I was experiencing it in coming up with topics for you and I to discuss today because there are so many. And I'm so interested in your work and the subjects that you cover on your new YouTube channel. Uh, I was watching all the videos and taking notes and it's extraordinary um, the amount that you cover and how well you explain things. That's Probably one of my biggest weaknesses is that I just don't have that ability to explain things simply. Yeah, well, yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. And I mean, it's, um, you know, it's always a task of trying to get all of the information that's out there and then try to figure out what jumps out and, and then to communicate and it in a way that maybe people can grab onto or to (laughs) narrativize it so that it can be kind of useful for folks. So Mm -hmm. it's one of my favorite things about the astrology work is that Mm. we have the opportunity to do that because there's so much information to pull from. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll get into that. But first, I'd like to introduce you. So I'm Laura London, and this is a special quarantine edition of Speaking of Jung. Joining us today for the 11th edition in this series is Hellenistic astrologer S.J. Anderson, somewhere along the banks of the Danube River in Budapest, Hungary. A native of Austin, Texas, he has spent his life studying astrology, Theravada Buddhism, and Shivananda Yoga. He is a lifetime member of the International Society of Astrological Research, and writes ongoing commentary on the movement of the planets, guiding others through cosmic joys and vicissitudes. He finds this regular taking stock of astrological influences has been a highly effective tool for grappling with our complex times. He is the author of The Thema Mundi, 33 CE and the Death of the Light of the World, published in I Am Infinity Astrological Magazine, issue 28, Queen, and The Great Stellium, A Cycle of Planetary Co-Presence, published in issue 23, Mythos. SJ posts weekly videos on his YouTube channel, SJ Anderson, where he shares his screen filled with his astrological charts and meticulous research. Please visit his website, sjanderson144.com for links to his YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and to book an astrology or cardomancy reading. And visit our website, speakingofjung.com, where you'll find links to everything that is discussed in this episode in the show notes. This episode is being recorded on Wednesday, September 23rd, 2020, through the magic of Skype. Hi again. 
Hey, Hi. wonderful to be here, Laura. Nice to see you. Nice to hear you. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, we're not doing video. And you and I, in the past, when we've talked, we've had the video on so that um, you, what you do so well is you share your screen and you do that in your YouTube videos, which I love because you're not just explaining things, you're showing it on video. And that's kind of new to me because I'm, I'm much older than you are. And I was really into podcasts. I'm still into podcasts, which is all audio. So I typically listen to podcasts when I'm doing things with my hands, when I'm washing dishes or chopping vegetables or, you know, in the shower, or I used to drive when I was driving. And now most things are on YouTube. And I I've, I started posting this podcast on YouTube uh, very reluctantly a few months ago, and I'm not sure I'm going to keep doing it because it's just the audio and I don't want just a blank screen. So I'm putting some photos, um, I'm accompanying the audio with photos that change every 19.5 seconds. And I don't know if people are interested in that. I don't know why anybody would want to listen to a podcast on YouTube when it's available and all these other platforms and I even make it available to download for free. So, but what you do, the visuals are really important. So let's talk a little bit about, I don't know if, so why I mentioned analysis paralysis is because there is so much to cover with you. And I'd like to go, I like to follow my guest. I don't, I mean, I do have all these notes, but I'd like to talk about what you want to talk about. So do you want to start a little bit with how you became interested in astrology? Is Do you think that's relevant? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, okay. that's certainly relevant. And, um, uh, you know, my story, I guess, I mean, I'm from Austin, as you mentioned, and I grew up uh, there right in the Austin area. And, you know, I had a kind of a tough childhood, lost my mother when I was 11, um, I have a family history of um, alcoholism, and so I was inherited that gene. And so I, you know, my early life was quite a struggle dealing with and grappling with those kind of uh, those inheritances. Mm -hmm. And um, and I don't mean to get too personal. I don't know if you were wanting to go quite Qu that deep. That's quite but, all right. You can go yeah. as deep as you you feel comfortable with. Okay, cool. I just think it's re it's relevant. It's yeah. very relevant to my because because I see astrology as really a spiritual practice in a way. I mean, it's a way to understand the world that we're in and sort of explain reality. And um, I needed answers after kind of struggling with such um, you know painful experiences, and then just trying to figure out how to function as as an adult. That was a difficult uh, process for me, and so I turned to the spiritual path uh, mm -hmm. very young. Um, about 2019 is when I really kind of had to, you know, get right with God, as it were. Um, and I that's when I found Theravada Buddhism. And I spent a lot of years in my early 20s going over silent retreats and studying with various teachers in America. Um, and I actually heard about the Saturn return for the first time during those years, probably about age 23. I was living in San Francisco for two months, and then my roommate was mentioned something about a Saturn return. And then astrology, I mean, it was kind of around the surfaces, but I didn't become a serious student till about 10 years later okay. after my own Saturn return. Mm -hmm. And um, by then, you know, I'd been a serious meditator for a long time, and I'd been a cardomancer and a you know a tarot enthusiast and studied that 
um, quite deeply before I became an astrologer. The thing about the tarot is that it's um, involved in zodiacal symbols and planetary symbolism for interpretation of the cards, um, at least in terms of the modern uh, way it's read, mm -hmm. like post-theosophy. Those correspondences were kind of established for the cards. And so I learned those correspondences, and then I met the astrologer Jen Zart on a kind of a whim um, through some mutual friends of ours. We went to a music festival in Boise, Idaho, and this was in 2016. And um, just like three or four minutes of talking with her, we exchanged not very many words, but it became very clear to me. She kind of opened me up. I kind of see her as like a uh, initiatrix. She was kind of like this mystical being that just kind of cracked open my vision in a way. And from that moment on, um, I've been just obsessed with astrology and been a serious student and now a practitioner and, a, you know, astrological counselor. And I'll tell you what she told me. Um, she this is what opened everything up for me. She said Jupiter has a, a 12 year cycle and that Jupiter will be in the same spot in the Zodiac every 12 years. And that just turned something on for me because in my personal life, I had had some really intense 12 year cycles. Mm -hmm. And particularly with like a, a love affair with a woman that kind of returned 12 years later out of nowhere. And I was just kind of reeling from that breakup and it just opened everything up for me. I realized kind of and this is a key point, I think, for my like astrological ontology or kind of how I understand it is that these cycles are very operative in how the reality manifests. And so once we see once I saw that, it really it not only took pressure off and gave me a great sense of relief that I was dealing, I didn't have to hold on so tightly to um, reality, like make things happen or try to understand things that there, I could, I could kind of let go of some of that and give it over to the planets. Um, and, and so once I saw that, it was just, I just dove in you know, head first and I'm still, go, I'm still diving. That initial dive is still going deeper, you know? Okay. You know? I'm going to jump in here. Uh, I love all that. I hadn't heard that story before. I'm going to jump in because there are two things I'd like you to define for the listening audience. You mentioned Saturn return just very briefly. What is a Saturn return? And then I have another question. Okay, yeah. So Saturn um, is a planet that moves um, in the. So we have a zodiac. Let me just break this down. There's an ecliptic. That's the path that the sun travels in a year, uh, according to how we perceive the sun. And we we divide that into 360 degrees. Um, that 360 degrees is divided into 12 30 degree segments. And those segments uh, we assign a, a zodiac sign. So people, your listeners have probably heard of like Aries, Taurus, Gemini. They probably know, you know, what they so-called are according to modern sunside astrology. Um, so for Saturn to move along that ecliptic, and it doesn't move exactly on the ecliptic, it goes off of it uh, a few degrees above or below it. Um, it takes Saturn 29 years to travel that same space from our perspective that it takes the sun to travel in a year. And the Saturn return. So when you're born, when anybody's born, um, Saturn is at a certain position in the zodiac. And 29 years later, Saturn will be at that same position. So it happens around age 29, roughly, for everyone. Uh, this is the kind of um, so-called Saturn return. I was going to say maybe the feared Saturn return. And what but does it sim symbolize? So Saturn, to understand the Saturn return, you can just look to the, the what we call natural significations of Saturn. 
And there's a rich history, I mean, a symbolic history, narrative that goes into analyzing what Saturn might mean. But just to put it short, I mean, it could be things like struggle, discipline, austerity, separation, isolation. Um, uh, a lot of times people uh, could look at a Saturn, Saturn return as the struggles of, a, of becoming an adult. So the way I think about it is there's like the, you know, this verse in the Bible, it's like we stop, we, we put down childish things. I, I, don't, I don't know the Bible too well, but I've heard that quoted a lot. And we, we basically pick up adult things. The way you can look at the Saturn return is that Saturn requires us at about age 29 to, to go into that next phase of our lives where there's maybe more personal responsibility. Austerity, I think, is a good word for it. And you can think about midlife. I mean, you're, mm-hmm. most people are mid-career. They're having to make ends meet. If they have families, they're responsible for other other people. That's also a natural signification of Saturn in the ancient texts is being responsible for children, sometimes others, other people's children. Mm-hmm. So it just marks a transition into adulthood and it happens around age 29 and we use that Saturn cycle to time that transition and people can find out exactly when their Saturn return is if they have their natal chart and you need obviously your birthday but also the exact time you were born and not everybody has that most people do it'll most likely be on your birth certificate but not always In that case, you can ask your mom. But having that exact minute of birth is very important. So for instance, my Saturn is placed at 14 degrees, 44 minutes Pisces. So when Saturn returned to 14 degrees, 44 minutes Pisces, that was the timing of my Saturn return. So another thing that you mentioned, uh, or a person that you mentioned, uh, Jen Zart, Sorry, I always have trouble with her name. Her last name is spelled very unusually, and I will have a link to her website in the show notes. Jen and I were the guest of Chris Brennan on his wonderful astrology podcast. That is my my favorite, if, if I might say, um, astrology podcast. It is called The Astrology Podcast, and it is available to stream or download for free from their website. They'll be uh, provide links to to all of their their things in the show notes. But Jen and I were Chris's guest to talk about Liz Green's book, Jung's Studies in Astrology, Prophecy, Magic, and the Qualities of Time. So I just wanted to put that out there and I'd like for you to now pick up where you left off after you met Jen in Boise in 2016, but you also know Chris, so I don't know if you want to get into that too. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because like the, the circle's complete, they've come back around because Chris is my primary teacher, mm-hmm. um, and shortly after I met uh, Jen, I went home and I spent about two months, I just went to all the public libraries in my city, and that's a... Um, a tip out there, kind of a hack for anybody who wants to study astrology. There's a bunch of free astrology books in your public libraries. Start there, you know, find the ones that resonate with you. But I did that for a few months. Um, And then I found through Facebook when I was on Facebook um, through actually the the friend that Jen's art was with on that trip that we worked together. I became mutual friends with him or friends with him on Facebook. He posted a link to the astrology podcast. Nick. And that was the first time I had ever seen that astrology podcast. Oh, her, the friend's name. I can't remember his name. Was it Nick Uh, Dagan best? 
It was not Nick Degan Best. Oh, okay. These were not astrology people, actually. Oh, that we, okay. She was the only astrologer there. And um, so it was kind of outside of this world that mm-hmm. we met. That's why it was sort of strange mm-hmm. yeah. in a way. Yeah. Um, but so it was a link to an episode about Saturn being feminine actually yeah. so brings us back to saturn and there was this whole ancient idea there's a few texts that point to saturn having a more feminine quality um ancient astrologers like to divide planets by gender and so there's kind of debates around that and they explored that in that video but ba- i found that podcast and instantly when you listen to chris and the people he has on you can just tell how um smart intelligent yes. how intellectual astrology is and how yes. i mean these are serious people with mm-hmm. a serious intellect um bringing that to bear onto astrology and so it's very if if someone's more inclined to that model i highly recommend astrology podcast i was and i pretty quickly got involved in chris's courses and by the end of that year i had finished his course and got the certificate um uh, almost exactly a year to the day from meeting jen i got my certificate from chris finishing his course and it's a very intense course i mean i i studied with all of my free time and blew through that course and um so no let me just jump in again that's a hellenistic astrology course right Yes, it is. Yeah, he's uh, got a course, um, his main course, and I, I haven't checked out his offerings recently, but yeah, his his at least then was this Hellenistic astrology course, and I think he's got some other courses now, but I still think that's his main, uh, his uh, the beef of, of his teachings uh, are this Hellenistic astrology course, or is this Hellenistic astrology course, um, and it's an amazing course. I mean, we read many texts. It was more um, complex and demanding than than a, some most college courses I took. I mean, there was homework and tons of reading and hours and hours of lectures. You go to Chris's lectures, it'd be like a lecture on the houses and it's like 20 hours of audio, yeah. literally. Yeah, and, and so, Chris does also offer some free downloads. Uh, his his uh, episode with Lisa Scheim on zodiacal releasing, I think is four hours long. And that's a free download. But I just also want to mention that Chris published a book in 2017 that's titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune. And it is, I think, the first real kind of textbook on Hellenistic astrology published in English. Um, Is that correct? Do you know? I think that that's, I mean, it's definitely the most comprehensive treatment of the subject. And I recommend that book to everybody uh, and anybody. And that become, for me, that's a textbook I refer to a lot. The best thing about the book is he's, he's got citations to everything. And so if you can also obtain the text he's citing, it, you know, if you're wanting to go a little deeper, you can refer to his citations and then go into the text and, and explore those texts further. But yeah, the book is amazing. Um, Chris is a very generous person and, and, and I yes. recommend his work. And yeah, he's a huge influence on me. So mm-hmm. I, you know, that's where I was kind of christened in or brought into this, this field was through uh, Jen, just by this moment of flash and then Chris through heavy duty, you know, um, scholarship with him, you mm-hmm. know, study with him. So. Chris is, he's, I think he's just in his 30s, right? And I think he's going to be one of the world's leading astrologers in the future. And uh, I, I also wanted to mention, I don't know if now's a good time, that you and I were both at the big astrology conference that takes place is it once a decade or twice a decade? It's called the United Astrology Conference, or we call it UAC, UAC. 
And it just so happened to be held in, in Chicago in 2018. And I live in Chicago. Where were you living at the time? I was living in, let's see, Austin at the time, oh, but I had were. been okay. in Thailand the year before and I came back actually to America. Part, you know, there were some other factors, but a big reason why was to attend UAC mm-hmm. because I knew that that was going to be taking place and I wanted to be sure to get there. And I think it's every four years, uh, three or four years is what I was, what I've heard, but we'll see with, with this new, uh, the new normal, just what happens, right. <laughs> you know, what happens, but right. we don't have to launch into that just yet. But yeah, I, I was excited. I mean, kind of why I bring that up because it kind of feels like a closing of an era in a way with having uh, these large gatherings and this, this real celebration of the global community, um, the ease of traversing borders in the old style, you know, um, that, I'm not too sure when that's coming back. So, you know, if we're talking about every three to four years, that would be 2022. To me, that's a little optimistic to have that kind of free flow across borders ready to go for the next UAC. And I know they were planning it in 2022. I'd heard some rumors. Mm-hmm. So we'll have to just see what what unfolds there. But yeah, just to go back, we we met there. And I remember you because I was the thing about UAC, um, it can be very intense physically. And I just told myself I'm going, but I'm going to sleep when I want to sleep and wake up when I want to wake up. I, I didn't do it like some other people, which is just go, you know, uh, 20 hours a day for a week and then crash. And so we had made, had some messages, but I think we just didn't cross paths, you know, and some of that's probably me because I was sleeping or, <laughs> you know, no, taking care of my physical needs. Yeah. I, I don't, know that we knew each other. I think I found out about you after UAC, but because of UAC. So for me, you know, I'm not a practicing astrologer. I'm not a professional astrologer. I did study formally back in the 19, late 1990s and use it pretty much every day, but I don't practice it. So I didn't go as a professional, so what I did, they needed volunteers, and they needed people who knew Chicago, because there were people coming in from all over the world, and I found out about the conference through Chris, because he was kind of, well, he was mentioning it on the Astrology Podcast for about two years leading up to the conference, that it was going to be held in Chicago, and so I had it in the back of my mind that I should probably attend, and when it got closer and registration opened... It was incredibly expensive to uh, to to uh, attend, and I thought, whoa, you know, I don't I don't know if I want to do this, but there's some friends that I wanted to see, and my astrologer Robert Han was going to be there, and I wanted to meet Rick Levine in person because we were on a show together, but we hadn't met in person yet, and of course, I wanted to meet Chris Brennan, so. I registered as a volunteer and they gave us a huge discount and then then they provided us with mp3 downloads to cover the small entry fee that we did pay anyway so I would not do it that way again because I missed a lot of stuff because I had to work and as much as I enjoyed working and helping people there was a lot of standing around and there were a lot of talks that I missed. Yes, you can get the MP3 of the talk and even the PDF files that accompanied it, um, but it's not the same as being there. And But I did really enjoy, I did meet Chris Brennan. He was one of the first people that I encountered on that first day. And we saw each other and he gave me a big hug. And then he's like, hey, can you watch my equipment? 
So uh, he went, had to go upstairs and get some stuff. And he and Lisa set up and recorded interviews there. They recorded mm-hmm. video interviews. Yeah. So I just want to mention a few other things that I did get to meet Rick Levine and spend some time with him. And I, he was my guest on the first quarantine edition of this podcast back in April. That's available on the website, speakingofyoung.com. And I met Gary Caton and Darby Costello and um, Howard Seltzer and Ina Stanley, who ran the online college where I first started taking astrology courses when I mentioned back in the 90s. So I thanked her for that. And and Robert Hahn was there and all these greats. And that's how Chris was kind of promoting it, that we don't know when this collection of the world's greatest astrologers is going to be under one roof ever again. So, uh, and they were you at the taping so chris brennan does this once a month forecast episode of the astrology podcast along with the astrologers austin Kopic and kelly surtees and that's available again on their website it's free to download once a month they go over the coming month and what's going to happen so that taping was moved to a bigger room it they're like rock stars it was so much fun and i forgot where i was going with this but i'm gonna let you talk i need to shut up and tell us what your experience was of the conference okay yeah and i will say i wasn't at that taping you know my experience was very um it was amazing i met the astrologers going in i had sort of set some intentions i want to meet this astrologer Mm -hmm. this astrologer this astrologer but once i got there my daily planning was 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 non-existent right but I got to meet Ben Dykes, um, who was one of my teachers. I consider a teacher. Uh, Robert Hand. I attended his lecture. Mm-hmm. I met Chris. Um, I met. Um, I got to attend a lecture with Rick Tarnas. Um, yes, I Mitra was at Jordans. that too. Yep. Yeah. So it was a real. Uh, I I just loved it. Yeah, I loved being there with astrologers. And even though I didn't even, I I talked to some close friends that I had known before the conference and got to see them and meet them for the first time. Um, I'm just trying to think what what else I could say about it. I mean, I'm glad I went and I'm glad I got to experience the teaching, you know, from teacher to student in that that same room. I think there's something powerful there and just feeling like Robert Hand's energy and his kindness and his generosity. Um, his lectures are amazing because he actually just reads charts. He'll take volunteers and he'll do little readings as many as he can get through. That's kind of (laughs) how he lectures. And so that was nice to see him do some chart reading. I I learned, I learned some things I still use today from him actually Mm -hmm. during that, that lecture. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, it was, it was wonderful. I mean, I guess part of my, so I, I I intend to go again if if, if all if it's easy enough to get there. I do think though we're now in an age where we have um, these kind of lectures available online, and they are available. I mean, you can get Rob Han and Ben Dykes lectures on their websites yeah. that are as good a quality as the ones that were at right. UAC. Um, right. And so it's just to say, I mean, it's it's like it's necessary in a way for certain things, but in some ways it's not necessary as well. Not necessary, uh, but I'm just going to jump in again. Okay, that, go ahead. Yeah. The, yeah, that the human connection and seeing people in person and looking them in the eye and just being in their presence and feeling their energy, I really, really enjoyed that. And Yes, I too was at the Rick Tarnas lecture and Chris actually took a picture of him and I'm in the shot and it's 
there were so many people in that room. People were sitting on the floor. And so it's it's just this strange picture because you're like, why are these people sitting on the floor and people have bags and books? And it, the energy is, is something you can't do online, you know? And um, uh, I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, Ray Merriman's lecture. Were you at that about uh, oh, I, Uranus I and Taurus? The financial astrologer, yeah. So that's something that I'm going to miss because I don't know when that's going to return. But yes, online is wonderful. Um, yeah, ahead. I mean, just sorry, just like yeah. for the knowledge. If you want right, to get the right. knowledge, that's really, it's available online. But yeah, the human quality of it and like the rock star concert feel of it, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's not going to be really as available online. And, and, you know, we can talk about that some too, of just like the world we're in now with everything's on mm -hmm. Zoom and there's these Zoom meetings with like hundreds of participants and you can't really see people and, you know, you have to scroll through screens to see who's there and maybe their pictures aren't up. So yeah, there's a whole morass, I think, that comes with the uh, human connection and the group feeling of the online world that, yeah, certainly the UAC is much better along those lines. I would agree with you for sure. Mm -hmm. um, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Well, I, I, I was, was just going to pick keep... up. Yeah. I was going to pick up where we left off um, with your, your personal story of how you got involved in astrology. And did we, so we sort of left off with you taking Chris's courses and then where did you mm -hmm. go from there? So I took Chris's course. I got the certificate. And I mean, this is one thing I just want to encourage other students of astrology. I mean, at a certain point, I mean, you are your own astrologer. You are your own. You have wisdom. Everybody does has has inherent wisdom and something unique to add. And I feel like that's kind of what happened to me is that I studied, you know, Chris's work. I read the texts. I read the ancient texts. And you know, it wasn't like a line that's crossed before and after, but at a certain point I was making connections with ideas that I hadn't really seen made before mm -hmm. and then gaining confidence in my own ability to make those connections and add ideas to the community and to the, you know, ongoing astrological discussion. And, you know, my practice is, so I, I guess what I'm saying is it was a transition for me into my current practice, mm -hmm. which is unique. You know, I practice in ways that other people, no one right. in the world does just because every astrologer is doing that. Right. Um, there was a thread on, a thread on Twitter recently, uh, this astrologer palace Augustine, I'm not sure that's her handle on Twitter, but mm -hmm. she was saying that some of the debates on Astro Twitter, which is the community on, on Twitter, sometimes we lose sight of just how nuanced and individual each practitioner is. Yes. And that's really w w falling into that, you know, finding my glove and then trying it on and then it fit. That was such a um, just an opening for me as an astrologer. And, it, I, and I felt pushed into that. And then I felt confident to just be, I mean, you, know, you become one, I guess is what I'm saying. It kind of happens to you. Um, and at, you know, a portal that was opened for, by Jen and then I was sucked in, uh, you know, there was there was leading to something. And, you know, um, I feel that distinctly at this moment, even, I mean, it's continues to lead to new insight. And, you know, every time I open a, a, an ephemeris or my software, there's always something really fascinating happening. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like there's always, it's speaking and it's speaking, mm -hmm. you know, through me and through other astrologers 
to kind of deliver messages to the present, whether that's like publishing something on Twitter or a podcast or even in a client setting. You know, that's what it does. It gives hopefully useful or meaningful messages to people. And so once that started happening, that's when I felt it just feels wonderful to, to, to be that kind of conduit. And I say that with all humility, you know, but, you know, you're, you're, you're looking like, I'll give you an example if you mm-hmm. want. Um, this was yeah. from this summer. Uh, this was an amazing thing that happened. Like the 5th June, 2020 soul, uh, lunar eclipse. It's the first eclipse in the Sagittarius Gemini axis. So for the listeners out there, eclipses happen in new signs about every two years. And this eclipse was the the moon was closely conjoined uh, this fixed star called Sarin, and it's in the Hercules constellation. And that constellation is depicted as a a man kneeling on one knee with a club, Hercules. You know, so like this this violent person taking a knee. And that week in the world was, I mean, all that was being discussed was take a knee. The protesters were taking a knee. The cops actually were taking a knee. And so it was this really magnificent, you know, yeah. um, reflection in the sky of what mm-hmm. was happening on the earth. And that's just one example. I mean, that happens over and over and over again. The more you look, the more you you can experience that, you know. Um, and so that's what keeps me going, this kind of opening of the sky. And this isn't anything, you know, the techniques help. The techniques very much help. The studying helps. It gives, it's like learning a language. You know, I got a vocabulary. I understood the words. I understood how other people have put the words together. But at a certain point, you begin writing your own, you know, paragraphs. And mm-hmm. um, so, I mean, that's kind of a summary to, to bring it up to the present. I know I'm, I, I don't really feel like I skipped over anything huge there. I did publish those articles you mentioned and that, but that's, you know, in the, um, in the same vein as, as what I've just described. It was just I ideas and connections that that were made and that I've been put into an article mm-hmm. um, and we can certainly go into those too I mean, fa- those are so fascinating to me I never tire of talking about it but I'm gonna I don't want to jump there because it's it's it, let me just turn it back to you there I mean wh- I maybe you know, I'm curious about this summer for you um, too with with what happened uh, even in that moment I mean were you fe- did you see that did you see people saying take the knee I mean you were aware of that kind of meme or that that phrase that was not kind of took over not this year i was uh when it happened in the nfl i was but i didn't actually know about that happening this summer but my question okay. yeah my question to you though is and i'm just not probably wasn't aware of it honestly i don't pay that much attention to the news i see it because i'm on twitter and that's really the only place i see it I don't like explaining why uh, I get pushback from a lot of people as to why I'm not up on what's happening in the news. I do that for my mental health. So I do want to ask you, though, when when you were talking about that, the fixed star Saren and on a knee, and then you seeing that reflected in what was happening, I'd like for you, because I you explain things so well to tell the listeners who don't really understand astrology or some of the skeptics out there who say or think that we as astrologers are saying that there's a cause to it and that the stars the planets are causing things to happen on earth and people don't like that and that's not (laughs) what we're saying is it 
So I was actually thinking about this on my walk. I was just out and I walked back here mm -hmm. to my computer to get on the call. I was thinking about this exact question because this has also been something going around recently. People saying, which camp are you in? Causes or signs? Mm -hmm. So that's how the ancient astrologers, at least how Chris teaches it. And I'm, I've am i been through the texts and I don't know if those distinctions are as clear, but I think it can be a useful just teaching tool. So are, are the stars like signs, so symbols in the sky, but they don't cause anything? Or are the, is there a cause, a causative, um, you know, feature of the movement of the planets and stars? And I, um, my answer, as soon as I heard this question posed, you know, five years ago or whenever, my, my, I thought about it deeply and I came to the conclusion that I don't think it matters which side you take, mm -hmm. because I think that even if it, there's signs, Someone sending the sign, uh, presumably. I mean, the sign, it's like a street sign is controlled by someone who programs it or, you know, even just a sign in a yard that someone puts to support something. So, it, you know, at some level, there is uh, a causative um, actor. And then so there's either signs reflecting that cause or the stars are the cause themselves. And so, so to, I guess what I'm saying is this question, what's more important to me here is what is the, what is the causative, you know, actor in our reality? What is that? And that's where you get into these really kind of higher metaphys yeah. metaphysical conversations yeah. that, and, and that, and to me, you have to go there. I think at least my astrology has to start giving that some time and some thought and at least trying to work my way around that. Um, before I go deeper. And so for me, I think there is some kind of God or God realm. Um, I know you have Miguel Connor on recently, and I, I tend to be partial to that worldview that there is a higher kind of heavenly realm, whether it's the Pleroma, as they say in the Gnostic realm, or other like Vedant, uh, you know, Vedic models. But there is this kind of godly realm. And then what happens is, is that the material reality is... Um, is kind of encased or held in that larger, you know, reality. Mm -hmm. And I'm just speaking my own language here, so I okay. reserve the right to rephrase or refer to other texts sure. or something like that. But basically, the stars and the planets are then, um, they're part of our material realm, right? Because we can see them. Mm -hmm. um, and so they, they manifest in our material realm. But I do think they're somehow connected to these higher and unseen realities. And I think the idea of an unseen reality to me is extremely important. And I mean, I've had uh, dreams, I've had non-local communication, let's just put it that way, with okay. other people. And, um, you know, I, so I've seen it. I know there's an unseen realm. And, you know, David Bohm and other new physics folks have showed it in the laboratory. Um, so I tend to go there with it all, that there's these kind of mysterious unseen elements to reality. And I think that that ex would explain probably how the stars operate on our material realm, whether they cause or whether they're just a sign. But we don't really have the vocabulary or a complete understanding of that to be able to even answer the question. So that's, <laughs> that's kind point. of my, <laughs> yeah. That's a great point. For me, the way, what makes sense to me today, and of course this could change, because we know, we have ephemeris, right? We know where the planets are going to be in a month, in a year, in 10 years. We know where they're going. It's not like we don't know where they're going, so we don't know what's going to happen. We know where they're going, or where we're going, really. So how do I want to say this? I do bring Jung into this a little bit. 
because of his concept of synchronicity, which is a causal. One does not cause the other. They occur simultaneously, but one doesn't cause the other. So for me, what's happening in the sky is a reflection of what's happening on the earth. It's a reflection of reflection. They're occurring simultaneously, but one is not causing the other. So if we were taking a knee this summer and up in the sky, there was, what was it? There was a lunar eclipse conjunct the fixed star Saren, which is taking a knee. So, and I want to get into activation. So because that eclipse was occurring at the same position as that fixed star, how does that equate to it manifesting physically on earth. So again, I I look at that as a synchronicity, as an a-causal event. That's just the way I look at it. I don't think that they cause things to happen. I think that they show what is happening. So I don't know if we're going to get into fate and free will, but I... I see that those very differently today because of my study of transits. And this is all very complicated. And another question is, I I know I dumped a lot there, but in the beginning, I wanted you to define Hellenistic astrology. And I hope people aren't screaming right now saying, what the hell is Hellenistic astrology? But how does Hellenistic astrology differ from what at least here in the United States we're used to seeing, which is modern astrology, right? Where most people have seen a sun sign column in the newspaper or in the back of a magazine. So what is the difference? So um, let me answer that (laughs) kind of quickly, but I do want to come back to to this other topic here if I could, because I think I have something really important to add there. Oh, okay. So can I just come back to that first and then we'll come to the Hellenistic Any astrology Any way you'd question. like to do it is fine. Yeah. Okay. okay. So I just want to go back because the other thing that's inf- really influenced me is the tradition of astrological magic is the term that is used currently to describe it. But this is a medieval, maybe an Arabic, so like uh, the end of the first millennia and end of the second millennia. There was a tradition of making objects. Um uh, during uh, the time that the planets were al- aligned in certain ways and making these objects that then hold the power of that alignment. And so, um, and I just, without going into too much detail, I've seen that to be very powerful. And so because, and the theory behind that is just that the objects in the material reality actually are constructed kind of energetically, um, with the same substrate as the planets in a way. And that that's kind of strange terminology, but just that you can examine an object. So these astrologers would have correspondence tables. The dog is like Saturn, you know, um, iron is Mars, um, love is Venus. And so you would work with these alignments to bring into the material world, something that reflected the energy of that planet. And so I just want to say from my work in that space, I do think there's something a little bit more connective in terms of the substrate of the material world um, connected to the planets 
as opposed to just being a more of a reflection. But I'm down with the reflection too. Don't get me wrong. And and the tarot work and the cardomancy work I've done, it's very much about synchronicity often mm-hmm. because that's a sort that's sorting randomly symbols. And it's just uncanny how those random generated symbols can speak so clearly as well. Um, but so, so anyhow, I just think that just to add that to the conversation, the listeners can explore that if they're more interested. But there's this whole tradition of, of the planetary energy of material objects and how to change the material world through these astrological alignments that does imply something a little bit that's more causative or kind of um, – one to the next in terms of working with the building blocks of reality. Um, so, so do you want to say anything on that or should I jump to the Hellenistic astrology question? I wanted to mention, and I was just looking it up. Uh, are you familiar with Caitlin Coppock's company sphere and sundry? Yes, I am. Yeah, I am familiar with her. Is that absolutely, is that along the lines of what you were just talking about when you were speaking about astrological magic? Very much so, yeah. She, okay. she, they, you know, they call it materia. Uh, that's a popular uh, term, and that just means the materials that you make when these alignments happen. You make objects, and then you have like a consecration or a ceremony that the energy of that moment then is contained in those objects, such that those objects can be taken into the future and and bring that energy into future moments when those planetary alignments are different. And that's what she does. Yeah, she makes uh, materia of all kinds, oils, candles. I don't know her full off, uh, offering, but I've seen the stuff on Instagram, and it looks yes. quite comprehensive and quite high quality. I know a lot of my yes. friends use her products, and they really recommend it. Um, so that's exactly what she's doing. Okay, and, great. Yeah, I, you know, the I, theory I, there, mm-hmm. but it's the theory is what I'm interested yes. in, that you can kind of retain the planets into the future through objects. But sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, thank you for explaining that because um, I know about Caitlin because her husband, Austin Kopic, is one of the three astrologers that do the monthly forecast on Chris Brennan's podcast, the astrology podcast. And so I am friends with her on Facebook and on Instagram and on Twitter, and I see the lovely, beautiful quality of the work she does. And I will provide a link to her website in the show notes. I'm not exactly sure what it's called, but the company is called um, it just Sphere and Sundry. Sphere and Sundry. Talismanic Offerings of the Celestial Variety for Practical Magic and Magical Practice by Caitlin Kopic. So yes, uh, we we recommend Caitlin's work. And then the other question was about Hellenistic astrology and what exactly it is. And I didn't know about it until I came across Chris Brennan's work because the astrology that I learned was the modern day astrology, you know, the Placidus house system, the tropical zodiac and 10 degree orbs. And it's been very difficult for me to unlearn a lot of that but um but but i choose to and so tell us if you would what it is yeah i think one short answer is just that it's not altogether too different from what we have in the modern um setting and that is to say that that kind of, in a way, it actually gives uh, credence and kind of builds the reputation of Hellenistic astrology that what it created is still with us. Um, you know, I'd say 70%, 80% even of the modern astrology can be found in the older texts. So the planets, 
Uh, the significations of the planets are largely the same. The house significations are pretty much the same. There's a few changes, but um, that's the same. Um, the aspects are largely the same. W- where it gets different is in just like so you can take those two of those topics the, that you mentioned, the houses and the aspects. Mm-hmm. In terms of the technical side of how those are applied, the Hellenistic astrology can be quite different. Um, but it's, but in terms of the big picture, it's, it's somewhat the same. So that's my short answer. But yeah, I can speak like on the houses, the, the, the key thing is that the Hellenistic system does not extract from the, uh, ecliptic, the, ha- the, the division of houses. And so it leaves on the ecliptic, the division of the 12 astrological houses and so each astrological house beca- is comprised of a full zodiac sign um, in the earliest tradition. And that's, that's a lot of astro speak, but I, I'm not sure how else to, to say that, just mm-hmm. that we divide. So in astrology, we have 12 houses, which are, which are just, they're topics of life, like children, family, career. We also have 12 zodiac signs, which we, we, we were referring to earlier, Aries, Gemini, Taurus. Um, and in the modern system, they, you can have an astrological house that contains more than one sign. So you might have your first house has some of Aries and some of Taurus Mm -hmm. in that house division. Um, whereas in the older system, Aries, all 30 degrees of Aries will fill the 30 degrees of the first house Mm -hmm. if the ascendant is in that house. And I will say that I use this house system partially because my teachings with Chris, uh, you know, the, what I learned from Chris, but Robert Hand is really yeah. the most influential person for me in yeah. adopting the, this house system. And I would encourage everybody to read. He's got two papers that are available online where he really goes into the ancient texts. He goes into the translations of Ptolemy and Firmicus, and he really, you know, explains how the older or so-called first house system uh, operated. And, and just people should know there's still debates about this, but I'm confidently on the side of that this system called whole sign houses was the first system. And, and, and so that's the big difference. One of the ancient system. I want to jump in there. Okay. I just want to jump in there. So I was saying that I studied astrology in the late nineties, uh, through an online college that still exists. I'll provide a link to that as well. And I, they use Placidus house system. And then I started getting personal consultations from Robert Hand way back in the year 2000. And he had just switched to whole sign houses. And I thought, oh, no, I am so used to looking at my chart using Placidus houses. So it was very confusing for me. But he was pretty adamant uh, about whole sign houses. And so I switched. And uh, I can't I can't go back. It, it it makes the most sense to me, this whole sign house system. But yeah, that's that's something about astrology that's been difficult for me is that there is no I'm I'm still kind of a black and white thinker and there is no one way, there's no one right way to look at to use astrology. And there are various house systems that are being used that are used and sometimes I think of it as well, maybe it's like religion that it's all pointing to the same thing. It's just different ways of looking at it. So I just wanted to add that, but go ahead. 
Yeah, and I mean, and that's a whole thing I really would like to talk about too is the um, variety of mm-hmm. astrologies that are operating in the in the twenty first century and how exciting that is. Um, I will say just to, just quickly back on the Hellenistic astrology thing, the elegance of using hell sign houses, it, things kind of fall together for me with that system in terms of aspect theory, and that was the second thing I wanted to mention. That the the other big feature of the difference in the Hellenistic system is that we use what are called whole sign aspects. And it comes from the affinities between the signs. So like people know that um, Cancer is a water sign, um, uh, Scorpio is a water sign, and the signs are divided up into the four elements. So you have three signs of each of the four elements, earth, air, water, and fire. Um, but we use aspect theory in the ancient system because of affinities between the elements and there's other ways we can categorize signs too, the modes and gender or sect. And so that the, the aspect theory, um, not only do the houses, com- uh, comprise a full zodiac, a, a full zodiac sign is, comp- uh, comprises a, a house, <laughs> but also the aspects, um, rely on the zodiac signs how this so how the signs interact with each other or have affinity to each other is how we actually get aspects between planets based on the signs they're in and so there's this elegance where everything kind of comes together the three the the planet signs and uh houses and aspects all sort of merge together in a very elegant way the modern system really kind of untangles those things and it's its own um, you know, very powerful system and, and the modern system of placidus houses or quadrant houses and orbs for aspects. You can find the antecedents for those in the Hellenistic texts, but they're just not made prominent. They're kind of exceptions. You know, so an astrologer will be like, well, let's look at this technique. Well, what if we did it like this in this one way? And then later, you know, one paragraph will be extrapolated into a fully formed quadrant house system by a medieval tradition. So, um, so anyhow, that's a long-winded uh, way of, to explain that. But people can research it earlier. Just type in whole sign aspects if you're curious about that and whole sign houses. Those are, according to my view, the two biggest differences um, mm-hmm. between the modern and the Hellenistic system. Mm-hmm. So earlier you mentioned a fixed star. And w- I was not trained in fixed star astrology. That's something that came later. But do you use fixed stars? I do. I use them uh, every day and increasingly so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah. I find them, yeah, just to be like this example with the fixed star Saren. And um, by the way, congrats on not being as keyed into the news. I think you've probably saved yourself a lot of, <laughs> a lot. You maybe added years to your life uh, on that. But um, I, I think, you know, that's just an example of the kneeling this summer that there was a fever pitch for like two weeks of kneel. Everybody was kneeling and kneeling and kneeling. And just as this conjunction happened, but I've just seen it to be, if we go with a reflection model of astrology, that the star activations get reflected into the reality. I mean, it just happens over and over and over again. Um, so that's because of how powerful they are. And I see it in the natal chart too. So someone has the chart of the planets and stars when they're born, often a planet being near a fixed star can, can come through quite strong. Like princess Diana had her moon, uh, conjoining the fixed star algal, which can imply, um, decapitation or just uh, maiming of the body. That's a kind of darker example, but there's many, 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 many. And then examples. did that get, let's stay on that for a minute. Was that activated at the time of her death? Do you know? You know, 
I haven't done the transits or the or I haven't looked uh, uh, into that, and I'd like to, and I should. I'll put. I'm going to put that on my list because I should. I mean, that's worth exploring most mm-hmm. definitely. Um, but you know, the moon is the body, and and but no, I, I you know no, it's a great question. I don't I, I don't have an answer to it. Let's talk about the difference between natal astrology and the world events, mundane astrology. Do you look at, you do look at mundane astrology, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that's, yeah, those are the three areas that I'm primarily practicing are uh, natal, mundane, and electional. You and I follow each other on Twitter and you were tweeting about some world events. And remember I said, really the only place I get my news is on Twitter. And for instance, you have covered things, not just in present day, but I've seen you tweet about things that have happened in history. And you don't just write your opinion, you actually will include a chart and show exactly what you mean. And that's why I really respect your work and like how you do things. So do you want to bring up some examples of well, let's first say how Everybody has a natal chart, which is kind of a snapshot of the sky the moment you were born, and you need the, obviously, your birthday, and as I mentioned earlier, the time that you were born and the location. And there are a lot of websites out there that will calculate your chart for free. You don't have to have astrology software like the astrologers have. Um, I don't know what you use. I have Solar Fire on my PC, but on my Mac, I actually love iFemeris and recommend it. It's not very well known, but it's the best one I have found for the Mac. So there's the natal chart, but then there are charts for events and for countries, right? And we call that mundane yeah. astrology. And then, and then electional, I just wanted to define each and then you can talk about them. And then electional astrology is the, the timing of things, right? The, Mm -hmm. the, uh, finding out, doing some research, finding out, picking a time to take action when it would be most beneficial. And there are some rules to picking an electional chart. And I actually used one of Chris Brennan's electional picks for the month uh, that I wanted to start this podcast. And um, I'm always going to be grateful to him for that because uh, it, it's five years running and we're still alive. So I'll let you go. Okay, yeah, it's 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 interesting because we just hit five oh three where I am, and I guess that's ten oh three um, there in Chicago, mm-hmm. and just this moment, the moon has uh, passed into a degree in the sky, where the moon is um, giving Mercury some relief because Mercury is under a lot of pressure right now, opposing Aries and making a square to Saturn. And the moon has now come in to rescue Mercury just this moment. And I was thinking about this for this recording because the first hour was dealing with that heavy pressure. But at this moment and for the rest of the talk, the moon is now protecting and kind of breaking up the attack on Mercury, if you could say. And that would be an example of electional astrology where we look into the future we say, I want to take an important action, like start a podcast or get married. I did uh, uh, some marriage elections recently. Um, and you find, okay, when will that in chart, 
win for the moment that is most important for the action. So for you, it might be pressing, I guess, releasing your first episode from a marriage. It could be saying, I do, you know, we look for what's that one action where you really can't turn back. Mm. Um, and we try to time that action to have a very auspicious arrangement of the stars. It relates to the magical uh, practices we were talking about earlier, because in those practices too, you have to find an election of an auspicious alignment to then do the ritual. Um, And I think that we could even take it back a layer further. There's this principle um, in astrology of um, inception, the inception of something. And even natal astrology is an inception chart for someone coming into the world. You know, that first breath when the spirit enters the body, mm-hmm. you know, that moment we capture with the natal chart. And so that principle, it's just using that same principle for every part of life, not only the birth of a human being, but the birth of anything like a nation, like a business, like a podcast. So, you know, in a sense, there's this through line between the various branches of astrology of trying to capture that an instant that something is born um, and and then we use the chart from there but mundane astrology another way to look at it too is just the astrology of the world the astrology of the events that happen in the world so it could be nations it could be natural disasters it's big big scale uh, happenings and that can rely on uh, inceptional astrology, we might say, if we're going to use the birth chart of a country. But that can also just be strictly transit-based, where we just say, well, Saturn is in Capricorn. That is the home of Saturn. So the the zodiac sign Capricorn is a place where Saturn is very strong. So we might uh, predict that the world might be under pressure or might have to deal with authorities or Saturnian, you know, restriction during a time when Saturn's strong. Maybe even a better example is just looking at the transit of Jupiter through Capricorn, which in Capricorn, we, Jupiter can be quite weak, right? It's the planet of expansion mm-hmm. having to go through a, a Saturn's home. It's very cold and restricted. And we saw in 2008, the financial cr- crisis then and the crash of the stock market. That was when Jupiter was in Capricorn. And then Jupiter is now in Capricorn and has yes. been in Capricorn um, since December 2019. And we've seen the stock markets, you know, bounce back. But the you know Main Street economy has really suffered mm-hmm. uh, during this passive Jupiter and Capricorn. And that didn't rely on the, an inception chart. That's just looking at the transits. Where is Jupiter in the sky now? And what does that mean for how events on Earth may unfold? So mundane, I guess, to just conclude that has different ways to go about it. It's such Um, an awkward word to call that branch of astrology mundane astrology. And I always hesitate before I say it because it's such a different use of that word, mundane, right? Well, yeah, mundi, if you think, I guess Mm -hmm. it's the Latin, uh, Mm -hmm. the world. It just means world. So um, I think that's where it comes from. And I'm not sure how that, you know, through the years and through the, the, you know, linguistic development ended up being a word that just means something, I guess, common or, yeah. you know, every day. But mm-hmm. um, I think that's helped me just to realize it's like Thema Mundi, the birth chart of the universe. Yeah. You know, that's that's the Mundi astrology, kind of the astrology of the big picture, or, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. So an example of that, did you want to use an example of, I keep mentioning to you the Beirut explosion because of the tweets that you did that were so insightful, uh, looking at it astrologically. Yeah, and, I, and I'll give a, a quick one that's 
that's also with this mm-hmm. Saren um, okay. thing I mentioned earlier, because so that lunar eclipse was happening at 15 um, Sagittarius. And we have a birth chart for the United States. It's called the Sibley chart, mm-hmm. where it's, uh, it's, I guess some people are saying the Sibley time, but then the chart is for DC. Sibley made a chart for London using a certain time for the for America. Um, but if we if we use that time for the signing of the declaration, it's a very popular chart that mundane astrologers use. It's like 13 Sagittarius, I believe, for the the degree of the ascendant for America. And we had a lunar eclipse at 15 Sagittarius conjunct Saren. And this was something where you saw like politicians. There's a picture that was going around of Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and all of the Democratic leadership were, were kneeling in the Senate socially distanced you know yeah this was right around the same that same week everybody was kneeling um and the other thing is that it's it struck at the heart of america so the ascendant degree is the, the the degree of the self the degree of the kind of essence of whatever has been incepted and so this eclipse happened right at this very important um, place that would say, well, this is going to speak to the heart of America or the nature of the American self. And I mean, this summer, and the other thing to say about that lunar eclipse, uh, Mars was making, was at 15 Pisces. And so there's only four degrees in the Zodiac Mars could have been at to activate this eclipse. And it was at one of those degrees, Mm -hmm. 15 Pisces making a square a difficult or kind of a dynamic square aspect. And this was the same week where all of the protests for the George Floyd, um, you know, uh, situation that those protests exploded during this week. So it was the heart of the American self kneeling all the way up to the state houses. They were kneeling. Everybody was kneeling. All of the Everyone in the public sphere was, you know, selfies kneeling on Instagram. And so um, that's one example of just how powerful this is, you know, using an inception chart. That is the USA Sibley chart um, hitting that very important degree, the uh, uh, 13 Sagittarius, the eclipse of 15 Sagittarius. But yeah. And so then later, more recently, we had Jupiter and Mars made uh, the first of three squares. And so I'll mention this aspect again. It's where the planets make a 90 degree relationship in terms of their position on the ecliptic. Um, and so it's, if we have a circle that's 360 degrees, 90 degrees, you have, it's like if you were to draw a square within a circle, there's four points on a circle. Each of those points are 90 degrees apart. When two planets hit those po- two of those points um, that are next to each other, that's a square. Jupiter was making a square to Mars. Jupiter and Capricorn, where we had said it was weak, mm-hmm. um, was making a square to Mars and Aries, where Mars can be quite strong. And the way you think about Jupiter, sometimes it's a big planet. It's expansive. It's airy. It can it, it's fuel really. It it makes things grow. And so this difficult square to Mars, it was like fuel to the martial fire. Mars is the planet of fire, the fiery red planet Mars. And in the ancient text, they delineated as fire. You know, um, it's known to be a hot planet, like scorching hot. And in that moment where the square happened, it was literally on the day of the of that the, the the aspect became 90 degrees. These explosions all over the world. It was Beirut, and there was a meme going around that was like, you know, here's the seven explosions all on the same day. And those meme creators didn't understand. It wasn't an astrology meme. This mm-hmm. was just like a alt web meme or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but the astrology was a perfect, you couldn't delineate it better. Explosions, many explosions, yes. as many would be and Jupiter, big. explosion would be Mars. Yeah. 
and and large and and yeah. Jupiter expands things and makes things big or if maybe I shouldn't use the word makes because of what I said earlier it's reflecting what's happening on the earth but yeah. tell me how else that can be looked at how do you see it with the uh, I see it I see it as I do think that the the substrate of physical reality actually is made of the some of something connected to the planets and so each individual being that's what your birth chart is it's actually like the recipe of you like you're this percentage Mars this percentage Jupiter this and and so everything in reality has a, a planetary recipe and so when the it, when those transits activate certain parts of the makeup it actually you know it's it, i think there i do think there's a some kind of cause i'll probably get uh, you know excoriated for this <laughs> when people hear this but i do have i i'm i'm like a cause and symbol uh, sign guy okay. i'm all of it i'm an everything okay. i'm a fate and no fate mm -hmm. a cause and no cause I I'm, like it. I'm like let's embrace the paradox embrace the contradiction yes. um i love that you know, you can think about it as like an antenna. Like, let's say, you know, they did these, the CIA and MK Ultra did these experiments, and not to get controversial, oh. but this is like public record. <laughs> Where'd that come from? Delgado. Okay. Dr. Delgado, he put the nodes in the brain of the cow, and then they would turn on the node, and then that part of the brain would be activated. I think that's a good analogy where. Wait, when wait, wait, Jupiter wait. Stop, this... stop, stop. Start at okay, the beginning. Okay. That sounded really interesting. Okay. Dr. Delgado, who's that? <laughs> So Dr. Delgado, he's an infamous um, doctor who worked for the CIA in the 50s and 60s. Um, I, I'm, those dates, I, it's definitely the 50s, okay. I think the 62, but people can look that up. He is known as being one of the doctors that were hired by the CIA for their MK Ultra project. Mm. This was a project that um, they were studying mind control, MK, you know, mind control. Um, and again, I think it's a, it could go back to a German word, actually control in German, and it starts with a K. Um, but this is, these papers were found in the early seventies. They were brought before Congress and the church committees in the early seventies. And this was the whole ex expose on, you know, clandestine studies and operations of the CIA. They hired hospitals. There's an infamous one in Canada that they hired. Uh, what's the, what's the big university in, in Montreal, um, the, the big uh, it starts with an M. I can't think of it, but it was a doctor affiliated with that. And they would run, you know, mind control operations. LSD was involved in it. I mean, this is a matter of public record. It's not controversial. Mm -hmm. I just thought of the analogy because the Delgado is famous for putting a wireless like chip in a bull's brain and then effectively remote controlling segments of the brain. Mm -hmm. And this was 50 years ago they were studying this. Um, and so I just was trying to think of like, it's more about a remote activation is, is really what I was trying to pull from that. Okay. Just that the planets, if they're activated in the sky, so when Jupiter and Mars are squaring, they're, it's like they're getting turned on in the transiting sky. And so I think and, what I'm missing is, because I, I do know what MK Ultra is, and there are people who have accused me of being a monarch. But with that aside, what is the connection with astrology? I think I'm missing that part. It was, I was more just an analogy. Okay. I mean, I'm not making any kind of a claim that MK Ultra somehow used astrology. No, but, no, no. But an, an yeah. idea of how astrology quote unquote works, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, likening it to that, I, I miss that connection. Okay. 
So let me let me say, I, mean, I think this might help just going back. Like I remember how I said objects in the material reality are actually made up of the elements of the planets. Let's just say mm-hmm. it like that. So you're 5% Saturn, 20% Mars, you know, it's like if we had a recipe of you, and yeah. I mean literally like yeah. the, the material substrate of your physical form um, is made up of this planetary kind of uh, clay, let's say. I mean, we want to use that analogy. So let's just go with try that hat on for a second as a metaphor. Okay. So when the transiting planets then get activated, it would simultaneously activate the part of your material form okay. that it. is – has that planet's ingredient. Got it, got it. And and, uh, did we define activation? Because we've used that word a lot, and I don't know if some of the listeners might not say, well, how does something get activated? Yeah, so activation would be like this summer, if we go back to this fixed star Saren (laughs) analogy. Mm -hmm. uh, This is kind of a minor star, actually. I'm glad we got to talk about this, because this this is one of the most shocking things for me of the year. I remember seeing that, and it blew my mind. But Mm -hmm. that happened, so the moon, the degree of the eclipse, 15 Sagittarius, Mm -hmm. was Saren is uh, within a degree of the degree of the eclipse. I think Saren is 15 Sagittarius as well and, and um, fixed stars don't move in the sky right Planets they move slowly you, ve- they, right very slowly not a full degree in our lifetime right or do they uh, seven, if you live 72 years you might see a full degree okay yeah so yeah it's about a degree per human life okay they're slowly moving but it you could it doesn't have to be the the fig the maybe the main point is that the eclipse happened on the degree of the fixed star activating the fixed star. Let's say Got the eclipse it. happened. Right. Well, the eclipse happened in the square to Mars as well, because Mars was at 15 Sagittarius. So Mars was activated. Mm-hmm. And a way to think about this, and this was in some of the notes we were passing back and forth, but mm-hmm. the syzygies, yes. um, these are the, um, the oppositions and conjunctions of the sun and the moon. The syzygy is like an astronomical, actually, con- it's a concept where you take three bodies and it's when those three bodies line up. And so in the case of the syzygies of the sun and the moon and earth is the third body. So when you have a full moon, uh, the sun, moon, and earth are in a, an alignment with the earth in between the sun and the moon. And when you have a new moon, the moon is in between the earth and the sun. But it's an alignment of the th- those three objects. That's what a syzygy is. And these have been uh, important for astrologers all the way back to Ptolemy, probably before. I mean, Ptolemy, there's a quote. He says, if you want to see how things then unfold, look to the syzygies. That's going to tell you how things unfold. I like to think about them as like a strobe light. Like if you're dancing in a club, it goes on. You can see people, then it goes off. Mm -hmm. And the syzygies are the moment when that light is on. You can kind of see what's going on. Or you can think about it like a drumbeat. In a song, it's that background that keeps the, the music grounded, you know, and so these are extremely important. So one way to think about activation is when the syzygies happen, what planets are making, are talking or seeing the syzygy by these geometric relationships, what we call aspects. So we're mentioning the 90 degree relationship. That's the square aspect. And this summer, the fixed star Saren was making an exact conjunction. So same degree. And uh, Mars was making a 90-degree exact aspect. So those were two that were quite activated by the syzygy. Right, and I don't think Uh, we also mentioned 
the different aspects. There are difficult aspects and then there are easier aspects. And the difficult aspects are the conjunction when they're at the same degree. The square is a 90 degree angle and the opposition is a 180 degree angle, if you will. And then the easier aspects are the sextile, which is a 90 degree, uh, sorry, 60 degree angle and the trine, which is 120 degrees. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yes, that's correct. And there's some debates about conjunctions. Sometimes people yes. say they're easy aspects. Yes. Um, but yeah, there's that's that's it. And, you know, there's also like Rob Hand, there's the whole thing in his book, Horoscope Symbols. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he talks about this in Planets in Transit too. But, you know, sometimes the difficulties are actually the hidden good. It's the hidden good yeah. aspect is the difficult aspect because that's how we grow. You know, like I sp- talked about my difficulties early in life. That's actually brought me into the kind of rich life I have now that's very, you know, healing and sustaining and, you know, but I had to go through difficulties to get there. Some people don't have that, you know, and not that they're better or worse, but just sometimes the gift is in the pain and the suffering. That's the way we develop empathy, right? I mean, going through a difficult experience allows us to feel, have a heart connection for other people in pain, you know? So, um, I do think there's something to be said that the difficult aspects can be good, but yet it's not fun going through it. You know, like if you have an explosion uh, all over the world, seven explosions on the same day, that's not fun, you know, for people that were really affected by that, you know? So, um, and, and you know, that's a, another point here is that as an astrologer, sometimes we're looking at maps and representations and it's worth saying that there actually is a lived embodied experience of, of this stuff. And these are maps. This isn't the living this is maybe a better way to think about activated. Like the activated is the person in that moment experiencing something, you know? Um, so just we're saying that it, sometimes I feel a little removed from some of this stuff and I don't want to be too cold. You know, I want to be like even this summer with the rioting and the, the protests or however you want. I don't mean to be rioting, to be pejorative. I, that's the problematic word, but the mm-hmm. unrest, let's say. Okay. There was a lot of suffering that went around that yes. was part of that. And so it's worth just you know, pausing and acknowledging that. I think, I feel like I need to, you know, I get excited about this fair, this Saren fixed star conjunction and the eclipse. It's like, all right, there was some real intense stuff going on for people, you know? So the big event that's coming up astrologically is what's called the big conjunction, or is it the grand conjunction? It is Jupiter and Saturn aligning in the sign of Aquarius on the winter solstice. So December 2020, this happens about every 20 years. And it is quite significant. So what can you tell us about this upcoming Jupiter Saturn conjunction? Yes, so it's yeah, it's very, very significant, the great conjunction. And it's, um, it's something that medieval astrologers and Arabic astrologers developed uh, techniques around and these techniques um, deal with Every 200 years, Jupiter and Saturn will um, change the element of of the sign that they're conjoining in. So then, yeah, they make a nice triangle in the sky. So they go from in zodiacal order. So we will have an Aquarius conjunction in 2020. We'll have a Gemini conjunction in 2040. Um, We will have a... Let's see, what's next there? A Libra conjunction in 2060. And it just moves... Um, by triplicity in zodiacal order. And sorry, that's 20 years. I was 2040 will be Gemini, 2060 will be um, 
Libra. And so the significance is that this shift of element happens once every 200 years. And when the great conjunction changes elements, they call that the mutation conjunction, where we mutate into a new element. So the last time we had a mutation conjunction was in 1804, I believe, or 1802, early 19th century, when we went in basically to a great age of Earth. So it was in the Earth signs of the zodiac and we developed things like the steam engine and the railroads uh, oil came into existence during this earth age this 200 year earth age um we really had a, a revolution in how humans relate to the the earth right and the grounds that we inhabit we're now entering into a period where the jupiter saturn conjunctions will be in air so it's an age of air and this started actually, it's not always a stark change. Sometimes there's a conjunction um, in one element and then it goes back to the old element. And so in 1980, we had a conjunction in Libra, three conjunctions actually. It was a triple pass conjunction because of retrograde motion. Um, and then in 2000, the true conjunction was back in Taurus. And then now starting with this conjunction in 2020, well, these these two planets will always meet in air signs until 2172, I think, mm-hmm. is the date, or 2179. So we have a pretty continuous 150-year period now of air, of this age of air. And the air element is associated with, um, and, and Aquarius um, is ruled by Saturn, I will say, but the air element itself is, with, with zodiac signs, they have various types of rulers. Um, Aquarius... Uh, and all air signs, Mercury is a ruler as well as Saturn are, are two of the rulers, two of the primary rulers. And so um, what this tells me is just that this age we're in, and you don't need me to tell you, just think about what's happened from 20, uh, 1980 to the present, mm-hmm. the changes we've seen in the world. And yeah. the biggest one, the most obvious one, computers, right? And then the Internet and then now the AI. So that's just I think listeners should be aware that there's this really great shift of the ages happening you're living here in it and you're on earth to witness it as computers sort of seep in and take over more and more of our reality and the digital connectivity and it's kind of a warning uh, as well as the the promise or the offering uh, because the technology can be so we're having to find our way through it let's just put it that way And I just hope we can sort of avert the worst case scenario or become sort of technological captives, you know, and and how can we retain the soul, the human, the humanity, the human spirit? How can we enliven that spirit, quicken that spirit with the technology being part of our reality? I think that's the great question um, that that we're, you know, poised to answer. And Mercury is the planet of divination and astrology and magic. And, you know, I think that there's something to be said that we will, we will have to kind of, uh, you know, re-magic, magic, <laughs> you know, give more magic into the reality. And I think the kind of um, ensouling, as Richard Tarnas says, we need to become ensouled. And, I, and I'm, I'm hoping that, that if we can carry that in sense of being ensouled, that the soul is here in the material and that magic um, that, that that's implied by that. If we can bring that with us into this computer age, I think we'll be okay, you know. But if we lose sight of that, and I think the the scientism can sometimes um, run the risk of demeaning the human form, where we're just merely like one. I was talking about in my video. Ray Kurtz file says that humans are just a notch. We're just like one little notch in this chain 
of some kind of like digitized apotheosis or something like this. And I, uh, I, I think we need to just make, make sure to, to celebrate, practice, protect our humanity. And, and that's just what I want to share with folks. But this is the great challenge of our age. And, you know, we're seeing it now. You see people, the cell phone addiction and even with the COVID-19 and the coronavirus, um, you know, event that we're all having to traverse and, and deal with, the ramifications of the response to it um, have been to increase that technological integration mm-hmm. in ways that have been real challenging. I know I was, I was talking also recently about skin hunger. There, yes. This is a new concept and people right. are having this skin hunger because they've been isolated with their computers. And so, you know, I, I just, I, I, I'm not trying to, I don't want to give it, it's just describing what our reality is. And again, it's this reflection of the skies movement into our, our reality on this longer term cycle. Um, so, you know, in, in one sense, we can't be afraid of it. This is a normal, natural unfoldment as we move into this air element an air dominated, um, you know, reality. But on the other hand, I think, and I think in every age, I mean, you know, how do you get your soul, give your soul food? You know, what are you feeding your soul? You know, some people talk about prayer and meditation being as necessary as food and water. I tend to think that's true. You know, so and again, this might sound we were talking earlier about the unseen. This is why I sort of brought that up earlier, because I really do feel like there's an unseen world that's just as real and maybe even more powerful that we have to feed or give attention to or else life becomes almost unbearable. And I think, you know, the technology will be the medium through which that suffering manifests unless we you know, are sure to kind of balance it out. So that's just what I wanted to say. I know that's maybe not as much astrology and more preaching, <laughs> but okay. uh, yeah, I just wish for people to be he- healthy and whole and happy, you know, and, and um, turn off the phones at least a little bit every day. I use my phone all the time, but I always turn it off for some parts of my day. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't meditate looking at a screen. Right. So can't go for a walk or run i guess you can have a wearable but that's largely free from the computers um so anyhow and it's coming and i'll say on that by the way when saturn entered aquarius for three months this year and then because of retrograde motion it will move back into capricorn but we had a preview a little preview of what this aquarian uh moment will be like an aquarian age i i deliberately use that article because the aquarian age has this whole other baggage but i think it's an aquarian moment at least for the next three years as saturn will be in aquarius until may 2020 march or may 2023 um and we're having to face authority that can be saturned with the technology the mercurial technology and so how and you saw it with zoom like a lot of things are on zoom uh, you know um, i've got attorney friends they're conducting hearings on zoom so like the the authority is using the technology to conduct its business and I remember that moment in March when these lockdowns happened and almost overnight, everybody was on Zoom. There was all these Zoom meetings. It became very draining. You know, um, the social life went online. There was DJ sets through Zoom parties where you're alone in your apartment and but yet at a party. So that's a preview of what I think is coming for the next, you know, three some odd years. Um, And the sustaining the mental health in a world where it's largely me, uh, a world largely me, mediated through computers. That is the, the, the knot that we're having to untie. And I appreciate that about you, that you bring in those reminders 
that I and maybe even some others tend to forget. No, I just was remembering that I interviewed the Jungian analyst Dennis Merritt in Milwaukee last year, and he said that Jung coined the term the new age, the, the Aquarian age, and I wasn't mm-hmm. aware of that. When I had asked you about the upcoming Jupiter-Saturn conjunction in Aquarius, I was thinking about the presidential election and how, isn't it the case, I think I saw a tweet from you about this, that every U.S. president elected under a Jupiter-Saturn conjunction did not make it through office, except for Ronald Reagan. Yeah, so there... And George Bush. So, oh, well, then it's over this is, because we got two that it's made over. It. Yeah, the curse is over because remember in 1980, it was the first conjunction in air signs. And so, my belief is the curse was broken. This was maybe just an Earth Age feature. Um, but once that curse was broken by Reagan and now Bush, uh, you know, I'm not so certain that there will be a uh, that the next president has to die in office. I don't think that. That has to be the case, you know. Um, That's interesting that I just want to mention John Hogue, who's a friend of mine. Uh, he is probably the world's greatest living Nostradamus scholar, and he's been on countless shows and on television, on radio. And I just recently heard him say he's called the correct winner of the U.S. presidential election for the past 60 years, I believe. And he's saying that whoever is elected this November is not going to make it through office. And I was talking to somebody else and I won't reveal their name. And this person said, well, that doesn't necessarily mean they'll die or get assassinated. Don't flag me here, an essay, um, that maybe whoever is elected will step aside and, or step down and allow the vice president to take over. So that might be interesting. Yeah, and that fits. And I'll just say I, I'm on record. I, I went on record in January of this year on another podcast um, predicting that the Democrats will win. Um, mm-hmm. and, and actually, it relates to the Saturn and Aquarius cycle because the last time Saturn, this is the short justification okay. for it. It's very easy. Saturn was in Aquarius when Clinton was elected. And he spent the first half of his um, his uh, term, his first term with Saturn and Aquarius. Um, LBJ and JFK served during all of Saturn's transit in Aquarius in the 60s. And in the 30s, um, most of Saturn's transit in Aquarius was when um, Roosevelt came to power and you have the New Deal. So you can. So the last three times there's been these kind of Democratic Party reformers mm-hmm. um, that have been part of this Saturn and Aquarius theme. And, and the modern astrologers will tell you Aquarius is like cutting edge thinking and, you know, new ideas. And, you know, I think that might fit with this delineation because the New Deal was certainly fresh, new economic policy. The Great Society is what LBJ brought in. Um, and that was during Saturn's transit in Aquarius. Some of that was formulated. Um, Clinton, I think, unfortunately, went the other way with kind of deregulating things. But still, there's this flavor of, of Democrats coming in. And before that, the transit before that was Teddy Roosevelt, who was a Republican, but was a so-called progressive reformer. There was a progressive movement at the beginning of the 20th century that Teddy Roosevelt was you know, a symbol of. 
So I think my prediction hinges on that. The other thing it hinges on is that every great conjunction, the last three. So in 2000, we had a great conjunction. The election was a change of party. Uh, it was um, Clinton to Bush, Republican to Democrat. In 1980, it was Jimmy Carter, Democrat to Republican. Um, Reagan in 1960, it was Eisenhower, Republican to Democrat, um, or JFK. And so there can be a sense of a change of party with these great conjunctions. I mean, they really are initiators of a 20 year cycle. Um, and a lot of it, Liz Green, Stephen Arroyo have talked about this. They've got a great book of lectures where they go through these 20 year cycles of the 60s and 40s and into the 80s. Um, and you, and you, we can just think about it now. Remember back in 2000, we had the, you know, the 9-11 uh, event happened and, and that changed the whole feature of the last 20 years. I mean, it, it was a, it was clearly a different 20 year period than the 20 years before, which were, you know, the promise of the end of the Cold War and the rise of computers and kind of the fall of the of the, of the wall. And then you had, boom, 9-11. And then you have this kind of maybe global security state that's emerged. And then now we in 2000, we have you know, coronavirus and we have this kind of biopolitical technocratic age that's been birthed and that and that's what I think will be the theme of this next 20 year cycle. Mm-hmm. But I, th- I think that the that the uh, so just to, the reason why I brought that up is because the idea of Biden stepping down. I mean, they're already talking about that in the mainstream. And Biden has already said he's just going to be a one term president, I think, even because he's if he's like going to be a transition president mm-hmm. is the term I've used. Okay. So I think that would fit the at least the news. And this is mainstream news that you bring Biden in. And, you know, there's this talk and this is disputed. And I don't know where I stand on this, but that he's kind of having cognitive issues. Mm-hmm. So if he gets elected, then I can see him potentially stepping down and you have the younger Harris um, and, and there's been some gaffes of like the Harris Biden administration. They both said that a few times. Oh, <laughs> so, wow. so, you know, that would fit, certainly fit um, that you have. And it, my prediction is Democrats win. I wasn't as connected to Biden being the president. It's right. more about just the Democrats. And right. I think you maybe have him win and Harris steps in and, and, and runs to the finish line and gets to the finish line. But um, so, yeah. I, go ahead. And just the last thing, you see many, many stories that Biden is going to have to be like FDR because of this crisis, the economic crisis we're in on Main Street that I was talking about earlier. There's going to have to be really revolutionary changes in economic policy because homelessness is increasing and all of the devastation of businesses as a result of the, go- to, of the government response to the virus that you have. They're going to have to do more to change the, um, the economic policy to save the society, you know, mm-hmm. and so. That fits with great society and with the New Deal uh, in terms of the Saturn cycle. We have three out of the four, Trump, Pence, Biden, Harris. We have birth times for everyone except for Pence. So what? how I see it, let's put it that way. How I see it is I look at things in terms of compensations, and maybe that's the Jungian in me. But when, we, when things, this all stems from, this passage in the beginning of Marion Woodman's book, Addiction to Perfection, is when things get too one-sided, it constellates the opposite. And I kind of think of that with presidents. When when things get too much and too weighty, then we flip to the other side. And so I think that maybe Biden-Harris will be a compensation for Donald Trump. And if Biden does step down, Kamala Harris is Jamaican Indian. So we're going from 
some people see Donald Trump as a white supremacist. And so we are getting, I believe, if the Democrats win, uh, a compensation for that. So we shall see. And did you cover everything you wanted to about the quote unquote new normal? I think so. I mean, it's just, I would encourage people to read about uh, biopolitics and technocracy. These are, you can find articles on Wikipedia about it, but it really explains the, I think the way of life that we're entering into. The one other thing I'll say, there's an article by the MIT technology review that came out in March, like March 17th, which was the, that Capricorn moon activating all of those mm-hmm. Capricorn planets on March 17th. This article came out that day and I think it's called something like we're not going back to normal. And that describes the, just in more specifics, the technological regime that will be installed um, over the next few years. And I, and I mean this with respect to travel, like having digital passports in your phone, scanning in places. And it's like China. I lived in China, you know, yes. um, in, yeah. in 2019 and in, in 20, uh, into 2020, I was living in China. And, and there it's already fully integrated. Mm-hmm. You have I scanned in everywhere I had. I paid on my phone scanning. So they're quite advanced into this kind of new technological setup that the rest of the world will be brought into now. That's interesting you mentioned that about the passport because I was talking to somebody yesterday about how they're here in the United States, they're changing the driver's licenses to something called real ID. And they're not required, but to travel, and I'm used to traveling a lot, uh, they're going to be kind of necessary, uh, because you're going to need either a real ID or to travel with your passport. And I don't mind traveling with my passport, but during this conversation, I mentioned how it just seems kind of archaic to have to travel with a physical passport that how many times have you heard stories of people losing their passport, leaving for the airport, forgetting their passport, having their passport stolen, and how that has put a damper on so many people's trips. And I just don't, it just seems like such an archaic method. And why can't we scan our fingerprint or I have the retina scan when I go in and out of Canada so that you don't have to carry a physical book with you. And that that China's already doing that. That's interesting. Again, I'm mentioning Dennis Merritt. This was our second episode together, which was at the beginning of this COVID-19 scenario. And he mentioned his daughter, who lives in China, or maybe she lives in Hong Kong, and, and that how they're used to sanitizing things and cleaning elevator buttons and the handrails on stairways and and wearing masks and how here in the U.S. we're not. And I talked about how when I travel, I bring disinfectant wipes with me. This was way before coronavirus. And I get on an airplane and I disinfect the tray table and the armrests and get dirty looks. And so... Yeah, where were we going with this? The new normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the new normal. And I think these are the kind of issues that are going to we're going to be confronted with. It. The one thing I'll add is this: the Saturn component of the Aquarian 
this Aquarian age, mm -hmm. you know, there's an authority side to this that I think is what can make it even a little bit tricky where right. like the, it's like a mask mandate versus just an encouragement to wear masks, yes. you know, and that's Americans have a whole tradition of, you know, choice and, you know, mm -hmm. bodily autonomy and, you know, these are complicated issues. And so I just think that that's where the rub can sort of come in. I mean, even in China, Great there point. wasn't, there wasn't mandates. I mean, there was, I'm talking about masks in, in okay. particular, but it's just the, so there's no mask mandates when I was in China, but when um, it's the economics are just on the phone. Uh, I was like your credit card, all of your bank is on an app and you scan to pay mm -hmm. everything. That's really the scanning that, that I experienced. That was the extent of the scanning. It's the economic transactions. And I think that's what we're going to be entering into. But we have this particular problem of the mandate side of it yeah. and that I think we're going to resolve over the next two or three years. There will be a resolution to that. Either people and I think it'll have to be a compromise because there's, you know, Americans are just not going to go along with certain mandates, um, but they're going to have to with others. And I think some of them are quite reasonable, actually. Once you like in China, everybody's happy. They love scanning in the payments. No one's saying, well, I want cash. I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. And you can use cash there still, too. But um, and it, there's a lot to like about it. I remember being there saying, wow, this is so efficient. Yeah. Uh, and I only carried my phone everywhere I went. I never had anything else. Mm -hmm. um, so it kind of simplified things. But mm -hmm. There is dangers, you know, getting rid of black markets. Black markets are can be good. I mean, in the Soviet Union, you had robust black markets. Well, black markets um, can go away when you have trackable digital transaction for everything. That's kind of part of why they're what they're designed. What digitization of the economy is designed to do is to eliminate black market activity. Okay. And, and black market activity sometimes can be a lifesaver. Like in the Soviet Union, when you had um, government grocery stores and um, allotments, you know, for the bread you could get per day and things like that. Sometimes it's not enough. And so there were these robust black markets mm -hmm. where people could get these things they needed. And of course, you have a legal activity that comes with that, too. And that's why the governments want to get rid of black market activity. But that's another tension point of tension. You know, it's like, um, do you want everything tracked, traced, taxed? You know, you know, whoever has the power to do that, I think there there could be potential for overreach in terms of like banning people if you say something wrong or like activists get turned off in that system. And I'm talking about on either side. We saw it this summer there were like activists for the both sides that were getting banned from Twitter or turned off from the digital environment that we live in. And so that's the risk of it. If everything's digitized in terms of the economic activity, you, could, you get cut out of it if mm -hmm. you don't go along. If you don't go um, along, yeah. So, you know, I, I'm someone, and by the way, this is how I look at astrology too, is just there's always the two sides. And I know that's become even a, a no-no. You can't say um, I like to look at both sides. But, I mean, there is there – is, um, there's energies and arguments for both sides. William Butler oh, yeah. Yeats, his father taught him this. You know, you read his biography that he said, now go make the case for the other side. Now go make the case for the other side. And, and that's the only way truth could be found Yes, was, was leaving space for argumentation on both sides and, and detailed, in-depth, you know, intelligent argumentation. Um, so I encourage that with all this stuff. I love that. So I'm looking to see what is left in our talk because we've been recording for almost two hours. And I think we wanted to leave it with 21st century astro community. And what do you see for that? 
Well, I think there's a nice transition from this idea of maybe restricted borders and restricted travel that may last for a couple of years, mm-hmm. um, that the astral community has will have to continue online. And we saw a conference in May, the NORWAC conference uh, was completely online. Right. For the first time ever, it was very successful. There was a conference that I went to online. I didn't go to Norwalk, but I went to another conference. And this was the, I think, Queer Astrology Conference. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm a cishet, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, I have a lot of, I just support the community. And this is what I really wanted to get into was how much I support my astrologer friends of all stripes of all identities of, of all. So not only in terms of like the various identities we can wear that don't relate to astrology, I support, I love and support all of them. But in fact, the identities we have as astrologers, I really, I'm someone who encourages the creativity with the practice and I, and a variety with the type of techniques that are used. I mean, I found Hellenistic astrology, astrology. It's an elegant system for me. I get a lot out of it with my clients and with my own, you know, research, but other astrologers feel the same about um, types of astrology that are so different from the Hellenistic system. They use different planets. So one thing we didn't mention is in the Hellenistic astrology, we use the the seven traditional planets and the nodes largely, you know, largely they didn't have Uranus, uh, Neptune and then you know, Pluto, make, make, Humea. They didn't have those outer planets and dwarf planets in the ancient system. But we do now. We have telescopes and we can see those and map those. And there's some astrology that really focus on those. Like you talk to Mark Jones and you read his book. Um, it's like Uranus and the nodes and Pluto, I think, are really what he focuses on. And I haven't had a reading with him and don't know his work too intimately, but I know that's the main scope of the work are these outer planet activations, you know? Mm. And so, um, I, I love that. I want to encourage that. And that's the great thing about Astro Twitter, astrology, Twitter, the community there on Mm. Twitter is that there is a diversity of practitioners. So I can, uh, you know, I'll be tweeting sometimes and then there's this overlap with someone who has a completely different focus and we get to share something, share some commonality. Mm -hmm. Um, and even for my own practice, I mean, I, I usually don't use the outers, but I will consider them some, especially for mundane work. And I'm into the dwarf planets because a lot of the people that use Pluto, they're not as open to those other planets yet. So I'm trying to encourage expansion out into the other dwarf planets okay. because I feel like if we go to Pluto, we have to go to those other planets as well. Um but, you know, I, I guess one point, I, the final point I would just make is just that, that there is great variety out there and let's celebrate it instead of keeping gate. That's the thing I'm really like, uh, I don't like to see. Largely, I try to encourage and not really cast shade on anybody. But the one thing that's kind of my biggest pet peeve is when someone else says, oh, you can't do that or that's the wrong way to practice, you know, as opposed to saying, well, hey, this is how I do it and showing why another way might have some validity. I think that's the best way to engage in a conversation as opposed to kind of keeping gate or to being dismissive. So that's my one pet peeve. But no, I'm very excited about about the diversity of thought in the astrological community, the mixing that will take place, the remixes. And I just, um, you know, I'm as excited as anybody to see see where we're going. So it's it's been great with the revival with Chris's work and how that has now been revived and then incorporated with other modern techniques and seeing how people are doing that incorporation is just really fascinating to me. I love that about you and I appreciate that about you. So 
to wrap up here, tell us about what you offer and how people can get a reading from you and what types of readings you do. Okay, thanks. Yeah, I, I offer uh, natal chart readings, um, and that's where we look at the moment you were born, the positions of the planets, and we use that as kind of a jumping off place or as a lens to just get into your world and into your life. And they can be used for a number of things. You know, sometimes clients want to go back and look at um, events in the past to try to understand better what happened. Other times people are looking at what's going on right now or the immediate year or two. And we just see what the astrological energy, um, how that's interfacing with the reality. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's designed to assist people in decision making, to alleviate suffering, to give them greater understanding of their unfolding life. I do electional astrology. So if you have a business you're launching or a wedding or want to elect for a certain time, I can help you find that key date and that key time of day to do something important. Um, and then I offer cardomancy readings. These are um, just pulling cards. I use um, the playing cards and then a Mercedes tarot deck. And we can just say, try to answer questions and just get into some a divination space, really, where maybe, you know, the gods or the divine energy can come into that space and help give answers using the cards as a tool for that. Um, and then I will say I offer a lot of content on Twitter and YouTube. That's my primary publication vehicle. Mm-hmm. And I give, I mean, I just, I give a, a lot away. I don't have anything behind paywalls. Um, and so um, I, I publish a lot about what's going on with the current astrology, stuff in the near future, stuff in the past, try to give people a sense of just what's happening in the skies. Um, and I feel a certain duty to do that as just being a public, public astrologer mm-hmm. and someone who's, you know, practicing publicly. So you can follow me there and, um, my YouTube, I'll just say, is going to be upgraded. I'm installing upgrades, uh, and soon I'll have a lot of you know high quality video where you'll see my face. And right now, I'm I'm just doing more PowerPoint style presentations, which mm-hmm. I love that model, by the way. But um, I'm going to incorporate my face. I think there's something with the intimacy where you can see someone and and get to know them a little bit. And I want people to know me. I mean, that's part of yeah. what being uh, in public is: is sharing yourself and having intimacy. Really, letting mm-hmm. people see you and seeing you know. So I'm looking forward to that growth. And um, but yeah, my handle on Twitter at sjanderson144, Instagram at sjanderson144. There, I just it's more my personal life and my mm-hmm. photography work. It's more kind of for fun, but um, the YouTube is YouTube uh, forward slash at uh, SJ Anderson 144. So the handle is the same everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I'll provide links, clickable links in the show notes on speakingofyoung.com. All right. Were, were there any final words? Just, um, you know, everybody, I, you know, love yourself. Uh, you know, yeah. and I'm, I'm, I'm just, uh, you know, I, I just I, I encourage you. This fall is going to be quite intense astrologically. Yes, yes it is. Um, it's it's triggering the same the March astrology we had. We're getting triggered. The elections come in. There's going to be a difficult mm-hmm. Mercury retrograde. I just want to I, I say love yourself. Kind of not really tongue in cheek. It it sounds simplified, but I really do think you know how we talk to ourselves is so powerful. So I just want to encourage everybody, you know, give yourself loving thoughts as you're traversing real difficulty. It's a real powerful technique mm-hmm. and. Um, Um, Thank you for listening, and and thank you, Laura. Please visit the website, speakingofyoung, that's J-U-N-G, dot com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, 
which are available to stream or to download for free. This podcast is also available on Apple Podcasts, Apple Music, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. And it will be available later in the week on our YouTube channel, Jungian and Laura. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device simply by saying, Alexa, play speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts or TuneIn. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. So with very special thanks to my very special guest, S.J. Anderson, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to a special quarantine edition of Speaking of Young. Uh,